Can you sail under the command of a pirate? Can you not? We don't listen to you. This nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. Words are things. We hold these truths to be, be self-evident. Careful that about calling people out of their names. I kept coming back to it, just trying to figure out where in the world we had gone so wrong that it ended up here. Well, I didn't think you had it in you. I'm your Huckleberry. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Why, Johnny Ringo? You look like somebody just walked over your grave. Fight's not with you, Holiday. I beg to differ, sir. We started a game we never got to finish. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? What we've got here is failure to communicate. Some man you just can't reach. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. You don't tell your puppy how to cut the electorate. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. Oh, yeah. Are you not That's a powerful new force. Are you not a Just know why you are here. And welcome to the Pirate Professor Podcast. Welcome aboard, crew. This is your captain speaking. How are you guys doing today? Hopefully you're doing well. I'm doing well. Are you doing well? We're going to find out. So today's going to be kind of an interesting day. Uh, specifically, we got we got some cool things going on. And part of that comes in the form of who we have on. And this is our special Halloween episode. Aren't you excited? Um, the guy I have on today is Dr. Thomas Vaughn. Uh, Tom is one of my colleagues who teaches communication. And what's specifically interesting about him is, first of all, um, he's a super nice guy. You maybe find that hard to believe later by the end of this thing. Um, but he's a super nice guy. When I first started teaching, he'd, he'd been there a few years prior. And uh, he had the office next to me. And he was just sort of this quiet individual who, you know, kind of helped guide me along. So if I had a, uh, you know, question because I didn't really know what I was doing in the, in the early days. In the early days, it was kind of like they just sort of throw you to the wolves. Here's your books. Here's your classes. Go go teach. And, you know, and if you don't have a history or background in teaching, then, you know, some of the paperwork and forms and things that you have to, hoops you have to jump through can be a little challenging at times. And uh, he was always one of those guys just from the uh, early days who always kind of had your back. And, you know, since then, he's he's uh, sort of this quiet figure who sort of drifts through the uh, the uh, office. So he's a uh, he's a super interesting guy. But uh, the thing that makes him uh, he was well, one of the things that makes him relevant, I guess, for uh, this week's podcast is uh, 
couple of years it came out that um, he had quietly been writing fiction on the side and not told anybody. Uh, but specifically, he was writing like horror fiction. Like, and I grew up reading a lot of Stephen King, and so it immediately had my interest when I found out what he was up to. And uh, he is uh, has a book coming out um, before too much longer, and we're going to talk about that. And also, uh, he in his academic life has spent a lot of time studying uh, what we call a apocalyptic writing and language and studying cults so what better person to have on the week of halloween is our own personal dr vaughn so uh i'm not gonna waste a lot of your time talking about being philosophical and stuff uh, but what i will tell you is it's gonna be a little bit different is because We'll uh, kick over to that conversation here in a minute. And then after it, I do a reading of one of Tom's short stories called Deleted Scenes. And I will warn you, if you things of graphic violence and, you know, things can make you uncomfortable, it's probably not the story for you. But if you're into that kind of thing, which I am, um, maybe maybe you want to give it a listen. Maybe I'm not a professional uh, um, narrator, I guess. But it's my podcast, so I guess I get the first dibs. Anyway, uh, I'm going to play myself out with uh, my buddy Rob. Probably the most cheerful uh, part of this entire episode. Channel 13, lights down low, a TV screen. An African rhino Yeah, I know everything About the Nepalese monkey Yeah, but what could I say Cause I'm a PBS junkie Yeah, I take you on the road With the antique show I bought this watch for a dollar And it's a place to go Thanks for bringing in your Tonka truck You can pay for a thousand It's worth a buck They got Amish dates Caught on tape And Mesopotamians linked to space Yeah, four generation Cowboy men City of Atlantis And where it's been Junkie, we got rainforest floor 
recording hey tom vaughn hey billy how's it going man good how are you how's uh fayetteville these days well i'm looking out the window here so i've got the natural light in my face uh-huh. it's a naturally warm october day but we're enjoying the sunshine hey take it take it while you have it i'm i'm i always get a little annoyed this time of year because you, you start wanting fall weather and then you know especially it's pumpkin season and whatnot and then you uh get warm days i'm an autumn guy so this is when i come to life it's, yeah uh, it's in the autumn i kind of go into hibernation all summer and so now it's yeah, it's my time to slowly slowly emerge from my cocoon at this point so one of the reasons i brought you over here um to hang out at the whatever this is uh is you have studied apocalyptic writing and language for a long time and this is it's kind of part of your wheelhouse and going back to the last presidential cycle when it you know it was clinton versus trump one of the things that um I remember you talking to me about it is you were starting to take note and kind of the language that people used in politics and specific, you know, like specifically presidential elections and how they would talk, like how they were talking about Clinton at that particular point. What are you seeing? What's changed in the past four years? Like, what do you, or I guess not, let me put it this way, more of like, what's the temperature of the world right now? Because people seem to be, have opinions all over the place. Yeah. Um, maybe to answer your question, it might be kind of interesting to just back up for a second and sort of talk through like how I approach apocalyptic rhetoric and kind of, you know, the, like what first like uh, got me into it was uh, when I was uh, dating my soon-to-be wife uh, in Austin, Texas, I would go down there and visit and there was this uh, pirate radio station down there that was doing a lot of uh, into the world broadcasts. Uh, they were doing a lot of kind of like uh, paranoid conspiracy theory stuff, and it was kind of a lot of anti-Semitic type of rhetoric. And 
then they uh, they eventually got taken off the air by the FCC. Literally, like got the door kicked down mm-hmm. while they were on the air. They were talking about the brown shirts or their, their, their silencing us. And they went off the air for a while and they went dead. And then this guy named Alex Jones like popped up. And this is before anybody knew who this guy was. Mm-hmm. And and so I started to kind of I realized there was something to this that just the way he was communicating with people and the way that he was sharing these weird fantasies this weird fantasy world that he lived in. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I was thinking, like, I wonder if people are going to gravitate towards this. Um, a few years later, I was had I was go, I was getting my hair cut, and which you notice I'm not really doing that much anymore these days. Mm-hmm. And the uh, uh, I think I just had a nuclear blast in the background there. So sorry, the, uh, the girl who cut my hair, when she found out what I studied, that I studied apocalyptic rhetoric, she. Um, uh, she kind of got teary-eyed, and she began to tell me about uh, her husband, who had gotten into Alex Jones, had gotten into this sort of like paranoid conspiracy stuff, and he'd become increasingly difficult to live with. Uh, he had detoured them on a, uh, a family outing on a, a holiday vacation and took her out in the middle of the woods where he said there was this secret facility with a secret army that was going to be launched, and it was going to be used to conquer and exterminate the American citizens. And there was nothing there but an old storage site. And she, she asked me, you know, is there anything I can do about this? Is there anything that I could do to, uh, uh, to kind of bring him back? And I had to be the one to tell her you can't because what these apocalyptic fantasies do is they actually go in and absorb the personality of the person who uh, begins to uh, uh, in, you know, interact with them. So uh, people can look at some of these people from the outside, like an Alex Jones, and say, like, well, that's just a joke. That's so extreme. I can't believe anybody would take that seriously. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that when somebody does take it seriously, it, it creates a situation where it, the, the, the psychotic fantasy literally absorbs who they are, and they're gone. I mean, after you live in that sort of performative world long enough, it eventually absorbs who you are, and you never really come back from it. And so what I've been seeing, like what you were talking about, is what I've been seeing is that it's becoming increasingly mainstream. Mm-hmm. Right. So these fantasies are actually the fact that we now have the, the Internet, social media in particular, it's allowed these fantasies to really become increasingly, uh, 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 increasingly uh, widespread. So it's just the Internet allows one central nervous system. Uh, it's like a virus. It just jumps from one central nervous system. to the next. And so what I've been watching is just something that I actually saw emerging about 10, 12 years ago. I've just, watched, I've just watched it slowly just creep into the mainstream to the point uh, to where now we have um, uh, uh, we have people in the White House who actually share those fantasies uh, with their uh, with their followers, and it's uh, um, and so you know it, it's it's almost as if by having a president who sort of like buys into a lot of that, it's like he's sort of uh, dragging everybody into this 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 paranoid world, which all of these people. Uh, inhabit, and so it's like uh, we're all getting a little, a little taste of what it's like to be inside the mind of somebody with a certain degree of psychosis. And it's, I mean, and and the fact of some of the places it's coming from seems to be giving it validity to people who might not normally take it seriously. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a, um, uh, yeah. So when you've got things like the, uh, I guess the most recent thing is sort of the. Uh, uh, 
Yeah, actually, and some of these things are old. Actually, I mean, we, we think of them like people are like like people are just now sort of learning about this whole child abuse, uh, Satan worshiping, eating babies, and that sort of thing. Right. That's old. I mean, right. that stuff is hundreds of years old. Um, these were charges that were uh, leveled against Jewish communities by uh, Christian majorities back in medieval time. You know, they drank the blood of babies and that sort of thing. It was sort of the ultimate sort of sin to like get the communities really whipped up so that they could launch these pogroms and then go out and begin uh, exterminating people and uh, attacking uh, their, their Jewish neighbors. And um, and this persisted even up into like the, the protocols of the learned elders of Zion, which was this uh, forged document, uh, uh, which uh, was uh, presented as a kind of Jewish conspiracy to take over the world. Uh, mm. And so there was a, and, and then and then we even get into like the 1970s and 80s and even the early 90s where we had, you know, the Satanist conspiracies where you had people reporting that they were being abducted by Satanist, you know, groups and uh, forced to give birth to children who would then be eaten or killed. Uh, there's very little evidence from law enforcement that anything like this ever took place, but they're just these really persistent fantasies. And you go on, like if you go online. And, and try to look this, this stuff up, you'll find tons of books of, of what appear to be sort of personal testimonies of people talking about how uh, uh, the people have had these experiences. And, you know, and once again, you know, you would think that if you've had hundreds of babies being birthed in these kind of public environments and, and eaten or, had, or people drinking their blood, you would think at some point somebody, uh, a police officer would show up. You know what I mean? Just somebody eventually would, would, would uh, start an investigation of some point. So these these fantasies are really, they're really old. It's just, wow, there's a lot of people really uh, buying into them right now. So it's uh, what what I'm kind of, and what I'm kind of, what I'm watching really, and to kind of answer your question, I'm watching to see just how healthy our, our public, um, our, 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 our public sanity is. Like, do we have enough sort of healthy central nervous systems out there to actually um, stem the flow of these weird paranoid fantasies because they're not stopping. Uh, they're growing. They're still growing in power. So it's sort of like I'm kind of interested just to see um, uh, whether or not they will that they can uh, absorb enough of our uh, uh, of our cultural ethos to actually um, you know take over. I mean, obviously, they're, they're beginning to take over to the point of where they're they're influencing public policy. Yeah. And that's an interesting world to live in. That's I mean, and that's one of the things that I wonder about, because right now, there's a lot of people on the left, especially they're like, you know, they're, they're hoping the election goes a certain way, because they, they sort of, I guess they have this belief that if you know, Joe Biden becomes president, all this will magically go away. And I'm like, no, wow. no, no, it's the undercurrent that's there still going to be there the day after the election. And it's going to be, you know, it doesn't matter who gets elected. That's that's all the forces at play are still going to be at play. Um, yeah. it, it just may not necessarily be someone tweeting from the White House, but, you know, that, you know, Trump's still going to be tweeting no matter where he is, um, you know, so that's going to keep going. Um, is yeah. it something, is it politics? Is it the world that we live in right now? Or is it just strictly social media that's feeding that, do you think? Or is it is it a cocktail of, of things going on? I think the big driver is social media. I think if you look at, I mean, 
if, if you want to take it down to like an individual level, mm-hmm. um, there are various sorts of uh, uh, theories about, you know, you've heard about theories of neurodiversity and things like that, that people process information a little bit differently based upon, you know, how their brain works. And um, one of the things that we see that, that, that uh, a lot of uh, psychologists are beginning to recognize is a lot of people actually have a kind of delusional disorder. Now, we usually think about, oh, you're delusional and you should be in a, Mm-hmm. Uh, in a, an institution or something, but in reality, there are a lot of functional people that are kind of very functional in society that actually have kind of a delusive, they live in kind of a delusive world. You know, take, for example, the person who's uh, um, uh, the, the guy, the big tech guy who was uh, spacing his name, but he was like, uh, got diagnosed with cancer. And they're like, you know, this is really treatable. We can, we've got, we've got, uh, treatments that will help you with this. And he was like, no, I'm going to drink carrot juice. And um, that's like, you know, where did, where does that, like, where does that type of mindset come from? Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people just individually there, they, they will sort of grasp on sort of myths and fantasies rather than listen to what the actual, what the actual empirical evidence. So they will defy empirical evidence um, to, um, uh, to embrace the fantasy. And so, I mean, I, uh, Steve Jobs, I'm, I'm, I'm spacing the guy's name, but anyway, mm-hmm. he, uh, he died. You know, that he actually, like, he, he drank carrot juice until it was too late, and by the time they started giving him the actual treatment that he needed, mm-hmm. he died. And that's the, that's the, the sort of thing that, you, uh, um, that a lot of people kind of do, and it's, it's just a... Um, so, but when you have social media and you add that to the mix, what happens is you suddenly have a channel for just injecting just sort of mass paranoid fantasies out there into a community where, I don't know, 20, 30, you know, a substantial percentage of people are, are, um, are, are susceptible to delusional thinking. Well, and the, so the thing is, you know, that's the situation. I, I hear a lot of people talk, you know, they'll, they'll discount somebody who has some sort of delusional ideas and they'll, they'll say they're, un, they're not intelligent but that's actually not necessarily true. Like I, I remember this is probably early two thousands. I was working with a, a lady. We we're doing some volunteer work, but I worked with her for like a couple of weeks and we worked with each other all day long, intelligent, competent human being. And then one day she started telling me about the black helicopters that were based out of the Ozarks that would follow her. And then like, and then she goes down this path. I probably sat there and listened to her talk about the, the black helicopters that, followed her and knew where she lived and everywhere she went there, they were, you know, for an afternoon. And, and then there was that. So you go from, Oh, this is a calm, rational, intelligent human being to this is an intelligent human being who has some crazy ideas. Yep. Yep. I I know a lot of people who uh, have similar sorts of fantasies. Um, you know, people that have, you know, postgraduate degrees, doctors, you know, there are a lot of folks I know who've got, had a, a, I know for a fact are really, really smart. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's something that uh, it, it doesn't necessarily, your, your intelligence level has nothing to do with it. So what makes people more susceptible than others, you know? Well, that, that's a that's that's one of the big questions that a, a lot of people ask. I've been reading a, a lot of the work of folks like Julian Rain and Stephen Pinker. Mm-hmm. Uh, just that's just lately. Mm-hmm. Um, 
they tend to focus more on kind of the biological. I'm just kind of interested in that right now just because it's something that I haven't really had a chance to really explore in the past. Uh, what they essentially argue is that, you know, you just have certain sort of, certain sorts of, um, um, there may be like certain types of evolutionary traits that humans have that, that sort of make us a little bit more susceptible to um, uh, delusive thinking. So if you, for example, think about, you know, Let's take, for example, what's going what's to allow you to pass your genes on more successfully, a commitment to your truth or a commitment to the tribe? Mm -hmm. Like what's going to make you more successful as a, as a human? It may be commitment to tribe. Um, your commitment to the truth might sound good kind of in theory, uh, but in reality, the people who were able to procreate back in the days of tribal communities uh, may have in fact been the folks who were willing to just uh, get behind whatever weird tribal idea they had and just said, you know, we're not going to worry about whether or not it's true or not. We're just going to, this is, this is what we as a community are doing and we're going to believe it because, um, and, and the, the, uh, the result of that is that ultimately that community becomes more successful. They exterminate the other tribe and they get to pass on their genes. So there's actually some evidence to, to suggest that human beings are kind of hardwired to some extent to believe to yeah, I was. And maybe it may be actually a biological adaptation. I was reading the. I'm, I'm teaching the business and professional a, chat, or a section of business and professional this semester, and so I was going over the per persuasive presentation chapter, and you know, and it go, it gets into the age old stuff of ethos, logos, and pathos. If you want to persuade someone, and I was just kind of reading through that stuff, and and I and I, and I had sort of the distinct thought. I was like. It, yeah, this stuff applies like this. I, I can follow this, this thinking. If you're talking about someone who's, uh, I don't want to call it an average or rational human being, whatever, like what's the legal terms, like, a, you know, a nor, you know, not normal. What is that for? They always a basic, you know, average rational human being. These things would apply to. But it seems like when you've got somebody who's more susceptible to like an Alex Jones sort of um, personality like they seem like they they really seem to get off on the like the uh charismatic nature uh of the human being and and sort of the logic part eh, that can just sort of slide off or they can just they can be a little bit more forgiving a little more forgiving with it mm -hmm. yeah well i mean that's the thing that i noticed about alex jones is that one of the things i really loved is he did a cnn interview one time mm -hmm. and uh, it didn't go well. He ended up like leaning or something. I don't remember if it was what the interview was, but he ended up like storming off the set. Mm -hmm. And but when he did his own, uh, he did his, he had his own uh, camera guy there. And he was acting like he was like escaping some sort of prison complex, you know, with like he and his guy, or he was like, he was like outside and he was like, look, the secret police, you're like, there goes one right now. And some guy walks by the camera to some guy. Right. You know, and so. What I realized is he's like an actor in his own movie. Like he's just going around all the time kind of being like he's in this repressive dystopian world mm -hmm. where there are these terrible dark forces that are out to get him. And he's the noble hero of our movie who's out there like fighting against those forces. And it draws people out because it's a, you know, it's a really compelling story. You've seen that a thousand times in Hollywood movies. So, and here's this guy actually living it uh, right. for you. So, um, yeah. So yeah, absolutely. He's really, charisma is one. he's really, yeah, he's really charismatic. I mean, he gets really passionate and, and it's one of those, 
I was listening to an interview with him. It was, it was an ex extended interview, probably an hour long or longer, you know, and he just completely goes off the rails. But then you realize, like, I, I caught myself like, going, oh, yeah, yeah, just kind of nodding. And then I was like, wait, I felt myself kind of going down that path of like, oh, no, this is crazy talk. Because I think I think at that point yep. he was talking about, you know, it was aliens and, you know, how the U.S. government has, you know, a secret pact with basically time jumping universe jumping quantum aliens or some sort and it just kept going down and down and further Too bad they down. don't that'd be kind of cool if they did yeah and it was just like oh okay but it, uh, it, well here's one of the flaws in this whole theory like so they have this idea that somehow like the the, the u.s government is somehow this like really hyper competent or like like entity that can control weather, it can like control cancer rates, it can control all these things. Right. But, um, you know, in, in reality, it's kind of like, well, if there really was this type of new world order out there that could do all these things, you know, it's not necessarily entirely a bad thing if they can control weather, we can have droughts, if we can control cancer rates, we can get rid of cancer. Um, but what we really understand is that we look at things like the war in Iraq and that sort of thing. A lot of these types of mistakes are actually just incompetence. Like it's just, it would be. It's kind of like that's kind of the myth. It's like the myth that human beings are actually just that uh, capable. In reality, we're, we're, the, the the government is not. You know, it shows its incompetence over and over and over again. You know, it's composed of human beings, and human beings are imperfect and they make mistakes. So, uh, like the response to COVID has not been. Um, that's kind of an example of. Uh, you know, it does not look orchestrated to me. It looks right. it looks fairly chaotic and and completely disorganized. So um, that you know that's kind of the the, the one of the big myths on in the, uh, the the world of somebody like Alex Jones. Or one of the problems is that it's actually very uh, um, there is no central organization. If there was a central organization that was that competent and that had those, all of those abilities. Mm -hmm. um, we would see evidence of it. Right now, there's not a lot of evidence that, that, that that's going on. I've got a f good friend who is, he's he's high up, in at least in state politics, but that gives him access to a lot of the national politics as well. And there's two things that he told me that just really sort of amazed me. Uh, one was how much theater there is in the public performance of what um, – political leaders do um, like they may do one thing with each other behind closed doors, but then act, you know, a completely different way just to sort of appease the masses publicly. He said, but the other side was, he goes, you'd be really surprised how many people have no clue what they're doing. And he goes, you know, from the highest branches, he said, everybody's just winging it. Like they, they come in. Yeah. And they, the, the former speaker, what did he call his people? The, the, not the, the former, uh, uh, the, the guy that was there before Pelosi that like, that like nailed. They always wore the pink tie. Oh, um, I just, like, yeah, I almost want to go. Google it. Yep. But he called his constituents. So like, all, like the, a lot of the, he said, like, there's just an element of my constituency or that are knuckleback. <laughs> I mean, it's just a funny way to sort of frame it, you uh -huh. know, knuckle draggers. It's just like, okay, um, you know, these, these are not these are not sophisticated thinkers necessarily, right? Um, so uh, that's kind of the uh, uh, 
Yeah. So, so a lot of times you you do see, um, you know, I mean, one of the, the big things about this social media and these delusive realities. I think what we're actually sort of up against here is really the next few years are going to determine whether or not we 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 remain a democracy. Um, right. And I really am. I'm, I'm really not sure whether or not we can. Simply because if you have a if you have a system in which a critical mass of voters can actually direct you know, national policy in a direction that's uh, uniformly destructive, it eventually catches up with you economically um, in terms of international policy. And at some point I'm in, the, in the age of social media and the fact that we can now just simply just share false information so easily, mm -hmm. I actually wonder, can you have a democracy based upon a lack of truth that you were like talking here about ethos, pathos, and logos. If you go back to uh, Socrates, Socrates said no. I mean, Socrates actually said, you know, democracies are destined to fail. And let's face it, they haven't really been around that long. I mean, we like, we like to say that we've been around a long time, but a couple of hundred years is nothing. Right. And so, um, you know, the I, I you know I'm not saying I'm not saying that we're going to return to some sort of monarchy. I'm just saying that you know with the rise of you know, different types of technology and maybe artificial intelligence and that type of thing, um, at some point I, I think that I, I just I have a hard time envisioning a, a future in which uh, a democracy can survive in its current uh, uh, in its current constitution the way that it's currently constituted. I, I, just, I have a hard a hard time seeing it survive. One of the, the things that we've, that's become what we've been used to. real apparent to me is the kind of the things that we have, the players and the technology. So from, I guess from a political standpoint, and it's I'm not necessarily one side or the other, um, and algorithms and social media, they're really good at tearing down faith in institutions. And so uh, like, you know, th that was a big eye opening uh, moment for me when I was covering the border and, you know, I'm, I'm literally there by the, you know, the, the wall, you know, telling people what I'm seeing and not, and then having people that I've known most of my life, you know, basically saying, no, no, you're lying. That's cause that's, and I'm like, but you know me, why, you know, I've got, I'm not, I have no reason to, you know, distort this at all. And then it was sort of kind of a, a wake up call for me is like, Oh, um, this is going to be really hard to do if nobody believes what we, you know, it doesn't matter if you're telling the truth or not, if people aren't going to believe you. Um, sure. Your family member did not die of COVID. They died with COVID. Right. So, you know, and, so that's the, yeah, we're, we're not even going to listen to the medical professionals during a, yeah. And that's, and that's the thing it started kind of with, I don't know, just journalism, but then it's like, okay, now science is involved in that. So you can have, you know, peer reviewed science and then people are like, ah, but you know, is it really peer reviewed? Who are those peers? And it's just, it seems all they have to do is cast doubt, some sort of doubt that there's some sort of, and, and I guess that's the beauty of these kind of conspiracy theories is there's just some kind of a beauty of all you have to do is cast doubt, but you don't necessarily have to provide any evidence of a counter thing. You just have to say, there's something, there's just something going on behind the scenes that we're not privy to. We don't get to see, you know, the man behind the curtain who's really pulling the strings. Yeah. And especially if you can in some way convince people that you're the person manning the barricade, if you can say that those forces are trying to silence me, turn yourself into a martyr. 
right. what, what political movement doesn't right. want to good like they're they're trying to shut me down. You don't know the battles I'm fighting, but they're trying to shut me down right and left. I mean, yeah. So what makes that so effective? Like why why would somebody believe that? Like you've got a level of evidence. You know, you've got look here's here's my reporting. Here's my cited sources. Here are all the things. This this is the narrative. I don't have a you know an agenda here. And then people are just like, nope, you're part of the problem. Where does that come from? Well, uh, I think that it's a, you know, it's just when that delusion gets really entrenched, like I said, it, it eventually absorbs the personality of the, and by personality, I mean who they are. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, if you try to, uh, in, some, in some cases, if that fantasy is really taken hold, when you start challenging the basis of their worldview, mm -hmm. you're literally challenging who they are. I mean, you're like if, to them, if you actually were successful in challenging the way that they saw the world, that, you know, uh, immigrants are nothing but criminals and they're pouring over the border because they want to, you know, rob the banks and rape the women or whatever it is that they right. whatever it is they've been told. And um, to challenge that worldview, especially like worldviews based upon like race and things like that, you're literally like if you actually challenge it, it would feel to them like you were killing them. Right. Yeah. Because that's kind of what you're doing. You're destroying that part. If your 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 personality is in part based upon your belief system, you challenge the belief system. You challenge the personality, the sense of self. When you right. challenge the sense of self, the person literally can feel like they're dying. So they will fight as if their survival is at stake at a certain point, even though uh, what they're literally fighting from is recognizing some just some element of empirical reality that that they're they're that delusion won't let them see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, the dissonance kicks in, and I don't know, they, it's literally they go into sort of fight-or-flight mode. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So it's going to be hard to fight against. You know, I'm like I said, the jury's out. I think the next, uh, you know, the next few years are going to be really interesting to see what happens. My question, my thought is, I don't think this is something you can ever necessarily fight head on. You, you, you almost have to use the same tools that got you there to get you out of them. Like at that point, you have to change. You have to change the narrative. Where if somebody's going to believe that, you actually try to start leading them. I don't know if that's manipulation or not. I guess it is, but you try to lead them toward a rational path. But you're doing it sort of through a you know path of least resistance rather than just you know out front. You know, verbal words. That's what Socrates said in, uh, in the Republic. That's what he said that you got to do. You know, at some point, the the people are going to believe what they're going to believe, and you got to, he said, you got to, you know, don't try to tell them the truth. Just create really beautiful myths that will get them to act in their best interest a little bit better. Create better myths than the the forces that are trying to harm them are creating. It's going to make it better story. All right. So, how do we create a better myth in this day and age? What's, what is the better myth? Uh, yeah. So, I don't know. That's gonna. I, I haven't actually put my brain to that one yet, but that would be kind of an interesting question. I'm sure there are some folks on Madison Avenue. I would. That's who. That's who I would turn to first if you want to like people who will tell you, you know, spend beautiful stories about what your, um, what you want your world to look like in some sort of ideal way. I would. I would turn to the advertisers first. Well, you know, it's um, it's interesting. One of the things that I've, I've I've thought about is we can be so divided politically. Um, or, you know, culturally, so to speak, but we all like the same movies. Like we all go to see the same movies and we all root, for, you know, we're all rooting for the same hero. 
but it's like we disconnect that side of the narrative, you know, cause, and I'm a firm believer that narratives are the way to connect with people. I don't, you know, nobody really wants to be preached at. Um, but if you can create, you know, some sort of thought of, you know, this, you know, you could do this. Here's, here's a good example of how life was better this way. Um, but I just feel like I don't, maybe it's, it's definitely a kind of a post nine 11 thing. We've really sort of embraced sort of the warrior narrative here lately in the past dec- couple of decades. Um, you see a lot more military films, a lot more, you know, that lone survivor type of, uh, personality that gets venerated in some form or fashion. It's not so much the scholar or the, you know, the poet these days, it's, you know, the warrior. Yeah. Well, I mean, Americans have always been kind of in in love. I mean, America is a warrior, it's a warrior society Mm -hmm. and it's always kind of been in love with, um, the brawn over the brain. I mean, the bad guy is always the brain. The good guy is always the brawn. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, but there are times when you have really hyper militaristic narratives. You know, like during the when Rambo first came out, you know, this really infantile, like you know, these these kind of you know, weird blends of, of violence and sexuality, where this oiled up, muscly guy goes out and you know, massacres a bunch of. You know, people that were being taught are some for some reason are enemies for whatever reason. Um, usually, some sort of political or economic reason that we're sort of being called. That these are the people we need to be demonizing right now. And yeah, these fantasies just emerge at particular times in history. It's kind of interesting to watch them spin out and um, and to uh, and it definitely tells us some, it's a, it's a good way of sort of measuring where we are as a culture at a particular moment is is. Uh, just how kind of infantile those narratives are. So if you were guessing, where do you, where do you say we're going to be in the next five years, culturally speaking? Hmm. Better, worse? You know, my honest inclination right now is to five years... Wow. You know, I'm slightly hopeful, actually, which is actually saying something for me, <laughs> uh, because generally, like, I, I saw this downturn coming. Yep. Um, I knew Donald Trump was going to win the election. Yep. Like, I already knew. I knew that before he won. I saw I saw the energy building up. I wasn't surprised at all on election night. Uh, and I knew it was going to be kind of a rough ride for democracy. Now, if you're not a big fan of democracy, yeah. Uh, that sort of thing, then maybe, you know, um, it's, uh, you, know, you might have a different sort of view on that. But the, uh, I knew it was going to be a, I knew it was going to be a rough go. And I think that I'm seeing at least some uh, resistance beginning to merge in some pockets where people are kind of getting a little bit kind of sick of it, I guess. I mean, it's kind of like, at what point do you get sick of, you get sick of not being able to go to the store without having to wear a mask. At what, what point do you get sick of like saying, oh, you know, I've already, I've already buried in hand. I mean, what point do you get sick of like, uh, I have a mom in the nursing home. I can't go see, right. I can't see her in person right now because I might, I might kill her. Mm-hmm. Right. So I haven't seen her in three weeks. Right. Um, and it's, uh, at what point do you get sick of that? And, um, and I do, be, I am seeing some sort of pushback against that a little bit, but uh, that hope is, it's like a 51-49 hope is what I'm saying in terms of probabilities. I think that uh, um, 
you know, we'll learn a lot this election cycle, and we'll certainly learn a lot in the next election cycle. And I'm just not, I'm just not sure if we can dig ourselves out of it. But I do. There's my cat. I see it. I do feel a little bit more hopeful these days though, than I have in a little while. But you know, do you feel like the shifting the shifting demographics of younger of the younger crowd is going to change a lot, you know, is, is some of this kind of like the, you know, the final throws, throws of the boomer generation, or is it just kind of where we are? I, I, I you know, I, I like the, uh, the younger generations coming through. I mean, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, there's, there's kind of a cottage industry of like making fun of them, mm-hmm. but you know, as far as I can tell, I mean, that can't possibly be any worse than, than what we what we've got right now. So this, you know, I mean, they're going to inherit a total shit show. But in the in the intervening moments, I really hope I I, I wish them I wish them luck. I'm glad they're I'm glad they're 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 going to be taking over soon. And uh, and, and frankly, yeah, they just can't do any worse. That, that's my that's my opinion. So I actually when I when I look at them, I just think to myself like, you know, just. I'm mean, I'm just going to send you all the positive energy I can because y'all have got a real mess to deal with. So I'm gonna I'm shift topics here. Um, talk a little bit about what you've been doing. Um, you sort of came out of of the shadows I don't know, a year or two ago, whenever it was, and suddenly you know I, I realized you've been writing um, fiction and doing so. Mm-hmm. Um, Suddenly, like you had short stories getting published, and you know, but uh, you were doing like the horror genre. I, I guess is that this is that is that the right genre? I don't know. Is, are there subgenres in that world? Like what? What exactly um, is it that you? you know, there's a, you know, I, I'm kind of a hard location. Some of my in terms of genre writing, it's uh-huh. uh, it's mainly horror, and uh, but I also have I, I'm, I'm what they would call kind of a literary hybrid, and so okay. some of my work has a kind of literary element to it. So. Uh, sometimes I write. It's not. I don't necessarily do like the vampires and the werewolves and that sort of thing. It's, it's more like a. Uh, um, uh, it, it's sort of like it sort of like stands both in that kind of highbrow literary thing and then in the horror genre. So it's really hard to sell, mm-hmm. and um, and I've already like found that it's kind of a. Uh, uh, it's it's a really kind of interesting zone to inhabit. Just to give you kind of an example. Like the stuff I love to read, and the okay. stuff that I really, the writers that I respect, would be people like Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian, mm-hmm. um, Echo's Prague Cemetery, uh, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude. And if you think about those types of narratives, um, most people would say, like, oh, that's high literature, you know, Marquez, that's magical realism. Right. But if you look at it, they're really um, dark stories, right. lots of dark images and actions with. Uh, speculative elements on them, you know, like supernatural figures in them. Right. And uh, even somebody like for you, who's a, a journalism guy, you know, somebody uh, like Hunter Thompson, you know, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I mean, you know, that's not direct journalistic reporting. And the whole concept there is that the guy goes to these two conventions in Las Vegas, you know, one of them, a, a prosecutor's convention for drug offenders, and they go in there on acid. Right. And that's, they have this really bad trip. I mean, it's called fear and loathing for a reason. It's one long, bad trip. Right. Las Vegas is the nightmare. So rather than inventing nightmares like uh, like werewolves and vampires, I tend to be I tend to go out and find the, the, the nightmares in the world. I, I think they're already there. It's just a matter of uh, 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 
unveiling them. It's simply, it, you think it's easier for people to relate to, or to, it's actually easier to get under their skin. Like, cause I, I was actually, I was reading a, or I was listening to a podcast last night. It was kind of the history of werewolves and kind of where that, that line of lore came from and how it originally kind of started pretty similar to like the witchcraft and, and werewolves were, you know, these people who'd made packs with the devil and, uh, as opposed to the, the versions that we have now. So, but going back to the, you know, witch trials and kind of the, the, the paranoia and the, uh, that stuff, do you think the stuff you're writing now is something that's going to, it gets into a darker place that somebody can't just discount like a vampire. Like you can vampire something you see on movies, but it's not real. Yours has a little more yeah. Um, reality in there. Yeah. If you want to sort of use the vampire as the idea, you know, Bram Stoker came along and he kind of like, uh, you know, his work was very derivative of Polyodori's work. It's, it's a story that vampire, right? So his more Ruth was kind of the model for Count Dracula. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, the, the whole Dracula thing was kind of a, uh, um, was really just sort of a, it's a story about uh, this, this Eastern European nobleman who comes and threatens the virginity of these Victorian maidens. It's really about sexual anxiety. But if you look at the vampire myth, it actually goes back to, um, if there actually was an active vampire folklore in the United States, uh, in New England. And it was about watching your family members die of consumption. And so when one when one family member died of like tuberculosis, mm -hmm. it would spread through the family. It was a very slow type of wasting disease. And so they would at, at times go out, and this is recorded even as late as the late 1800s, and exhume the bodies of their dead family members. And uh, a doctor would open up the body. They would pull out the organs if they found any coagulated blood on the heart. The organs would be burned, and sometimes the victim, you know, the next person who was sick, like the brother of the victim who's sick, would be would be required to drink, you know, this concoction of ashes and water. And that's, I mean, I mean, who needs a Victorian uh, or who needs a, a Eastern European count to come over and 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 bite you when you've got tuberculosis out there? Right. And you've got this and you've got this disease that's killing people and you don't understand why you don't even have a concept of microorganisms. And so this entire folklore develops around it. It's really um, uh, for me, it's, uh, you know, and one of the things I actually like about H.P. Lovecraft's story, uh, The Shunned House, is the fact that it's the only one that has a kind of accurate uh, uh, vision of the American folklore behind uh, the vampire. And it has nothing to do with, you know, sexual anxiety. Although, sure, you know, sexual anxiety films have their place and everything. It's just not like that. Um, and so, um, but what a lot of what I kind of deal with is like the fear of death mm -hmm. um, and what, what the meaning of death. And that's kind of what the, the vampire myth is really about. It, it, it's, it's about watching the people around you die, the loved ones, the young people, and watch them one by one slowly dissipate, uh, turn pale, cough up blood. And, and die. And that was those people's reality. And these were the stories that they generated and created to try to deal with. So that's what I think is that, and that, you know, once again, you know, you, you, you don't really need to, uh, uh, I don't know, you just don't, you don't really need to, to, to invent uh, a story when you've got our reality, the reality that we live in to, to sort of draw from. And I think, I think sometimes my stories, uh, they sometimes get, uh, uh, many writers will say, will say that they're somewhat a little bit challenging at times. Mm -hmm. um, not so much because they are, uh, not so much because they're uh, 
uh, they're gory or anything like that. I don't have a lot of, you know, I'm, I'm not a, not a, a real gory writer necessarily. I, I certainly don't. There are people out there that would be uh, a lot more, uh, a lot more graphic in their descriptions. I actually don't spend a lot of time discussing, describing violence. Mm -hmm. But what I've just been told is there is something just disturbing about the way the stories unfold. And, um, and it's, uh, you know, not all, not all editors really like it. Not all readers really like it. Uh, some of them find it, uh, 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 I, I've, I've gotten, you know, I've had editors react in really negative ways when I've, when I've sent them stories and they've gotten kind of upset with me. And it's just the, uh, um, I don't know. I, I started writing several years ago. Not, I didn't, I didn't tell anybody I was doing it. Uh, I just sort of do, started doing it on my own, and it was for me just sort of working through like personal trauma and stuff like that. So I was just sort of like, I was unpacking some stuff, and so it was some real, you know, I was, it was some some crazy stuff was coming out. And you know, the thing about it is, is just, you know, I'm not going to write anything that's not true, and I, it's, you know, I want to make sure that it rings true for me. And sometimes the truth isn't always pretty, and so, um, you know, it doesn't mean that the story is true. Right. Just you know, from a standpoint of like this all really happened, but that it rings true with a certain experience or way of seeing the world. Well, and I wonder if that's what causes people to have a negative reaction is because it rings a little too true to them, and that's what so, it, I think. Maybe in some cases it can. You know, I mean, there are there are a lot of editors that are are kind enough to sort of put you know explain parameters to you of what they don't want to see. Mm -hmm. So let's say, for example, that. You know, they'll, they'll, for example, specify we don't want to see any animals abused in the story. We don't want stories about animal abuse. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I write a lot about the Ozarks and the Ozarks is, let's face it, it's kind of built on the abuse of animals. That's a big part of, uh, uh, of the culture up here in the hill. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just a, uh, you know, and, and certainly I think what they generally, what, what they're sort of trying to say is that nothing that glorifies it. I certainly don't think my work glorifies uh, violence or anything like that. But on the other hand, it's just, it's there because it, 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 the things that are there in the world are the things that are, that, uh, um, I'm going to write about. And I'm, and, you know, and, and to me, if, if, if that seems to be something that needs to be in a story, I'm not going to steer away from it simply because, um, um, uh, simply because I, if, if, it, if it needs to be there, I'm going to put it there and just sort of suffer the consequences of, you know, a, a reader's potential reaction. It might be negative. So, so do you think I mean, a lot of, a lot of the scary stories, uh, you know, I guess going all the way back, maybe not the, the well, I guess, yeah, some of the grim stories, but you know, you, you had the, the rise of like the Godzilla stories in post, you know, once the, the, the atom bomb came along. And so it was a fear of radiation. Then, then I noticed, you know, the past is zombies became really popular lately, but it, it stopped being about the undead and it started being about, it was a virus taking hold and right. that sort of faded, but I, I'm kind of wondering now in the world of COVID, if like zombies or something down the, you know, the pandemic, um, fear of pandemic is going to spawn something new and it, well, it's fear of pandemic and society imploding around it. Um, seems to be the current thing, which I think might ring a little too true. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but once again, these are a lot of these things are kind of like universal things. You, know, you mentioned like grim fairy tales. Um, mm -hmm. 
I mean, what are those things about? I mean, people think, are those just invented stories? Are those just stories people made up and tossed out there to entertain children? You know, take, for example, like the wicked stepmother, like mm-hmm. that that type of narrative. Um, there are actually, this is in, a, a, once again, I can't remember if this is either Stephen Pinker or Julian Rain that writes about that and uh, writes about this in their work on violence. But, I mean, one of them makes the observation that children are something like a thousand times more likely to be killed by a non-biological parent than they are by a biological parent. Mm -hmm. And this is just a weird sort of statistic that's really difficult to explain. Now, there are some people that might hear me even say that statistic and say, I don't want to hear that. You know, don't don't say that type of thing. That that upsets me. You're talking about children. Right. But it's like, but it's but if that's the way it is, you know, and you go back to like the evil stepmother, it's like maybe those fairy tales are like tell it. Maybe it's an instructional kit. It's like, hey, kids, when mom dies in childbirth and dad remarries, guess what? better watch out you know especially back in like the medieval period and that sort of thing you can kind of imagine things getting kind of rough for uh rough for the offspring at that point so what what i think that the fairy tales are is they're kind of like containers of trauma just like shared past cultural trauma and they um and so like with godzilla you know when when godzilla first came out of the ocean in the 1940s you know that first black and white one Mm-hmm. Um, it's not some cute monster movie. It's not some cute little thing. And Godzilla's not a good guy. Right. Um, one of the things that's very striking about that movie is the fact it's one of the only ones where you actually see hospitals. So mm-hmm. Godzilla's gone through. And then we're, you know, where are you going to be after Godzilla? You're not going to be standing on top of a volcano or your helicopter going like woohoo or something like that. Right. You're going to be in the hospital with radiation burns. Right. And so you see all the patients lined up with radiation burns and children dying. It's weird, you know, and of course, eventually they had to sanitize it and make it a little bit more um, something that would be easier to market to a sensitive audience. Mm-hmm. But that first Godzilla movie was, you're absolutely right. That was that was just a little PTSD from two atomic bomb. Yeah. So what do you think is going to come out of now? Do you have any idea? Or are you going to be the king of that new genre? Oh, no, 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 no. Dystop- I, I don't, I don't know about the yeah, I don't. I don't know about the. Uh, um, you know, I'm just doing my thing. I'm not trying to, to catch any type of popular wave. Or mm-hmm. I think that it's. Uh, you know, I, I think that in some ways uh, th- there are some folks that you know, disease pandemic books are always coming out. They have been for, right. for years. The the folks who I know who had them that came out right during when, when COVID hit, it was kind of like, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Because on the one hand, are people going to be more interested in the virus, or are they going to be more like? I'm sick of it. <laughs> I'm right. living this. I don't want to read about it. So um, my guess is, you know, actually you might see some stuff that's more escapist. Uh, that that might, that's entirely possible. You might see something that's completely, uh, um, uh, I could see, I could easily see it like going from uh, less dystopian types of, of discourse into something uh, more archetypal or something, you know, frankly, more, you know, maybe more science fiction or something. I don't know. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's it, it's an interesting time to see, and, and, and think about the other anxieties that the COVID might, for example, bring out. I mean, it could be something like isolation. Mm-hmm. It could be something like uh, lack of community. It could be a fragmented community. Uh, maybe even you know, also you know, just the fact that people are now losing family members. You know, I, I, I look at like, you know, who knows, like the folks who, who lived through this thing in New York, you know, when it first hit and it was just like killing, it was just, it was killing thousands of people a day. Right. Uh, imagine the neighborhoods that just got decimated by that. 
Uh, I don't, you know, and, and there's a writer up there somewhere in one of those apartments and, and one of those enclaves in New York. And God only knows what they're going to what they're going to come up with out of this all this this mess. I mean, yeah, something it's going to be interesting. Something out of their own trauma is going to come out of it. Um, I would imagine. Now. Um, the isolation's a real thing. Like I'm out here at the cabin and, and like legitimately this conversation will probably be the biggest, longest conversation I have with anyone all week. Like, and this is kind of one of the reasons I started doing, you know, this thing is like, I know some interesting people out in the world that, and actually this is sort of the one shot I've got where they're, um, I can sit down and talk to them. You know, uh, I guess the thing, the, the technology suddenly got better real fast on that. You can do things like this, or at least more available. And so, but the isolation's real. Like I've, I've had days where I realized I probably haven't said 10 words because I'm just by myself out here. And I'm just kind of, and so you, you live in those, that bubble of your own head for a while. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I, I find it an interesting. I, I find it kind of an interesting exercise to do. So it's, uh, um, yeah, I, I find I'm processing information differently as a result of occasionally going days without. Uh, yeah, obviously, I, I have my, my wife here in the house with me, but um, you know, on, on during periods of time when she's working a lot, like she works mm-hmm. a lot on uh, online, I can I can go for long periods where I'm just, yeah. But I'm a Buddhist, so I meditate. I'm just like, okay, I'm just, I pretend I'm in retreat. I just like, um, I just go into, uh, I just go into meditation. It's, uh, I've definitely become more aware of some of the things that bug me. I think they, like the noise, the level of noise went down in a lot of ways. And so it allowed me to focus. That's one of the reasons I got rid of my social media now, um, stuff on my phone. Like I was like, I am tired of this. It was like, I'm, this is, this is officially a, a negative influence on my life. And, so yeah. and and so I started looking for ways to, in that respect, kind of uh, systematically inconvenience myself more. Um, like, like if I want to check my Facebook, I have to physically go to the computer and sit down and log on and check it now or have a conversation with somebody. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I, I, mark, I mark the number. I think that's a great idea. I mark the number of times I do it. Like I have like a uh, like something like Facebook. I can only check once a day. Mm-hmm. So it's just like okay, I'm only. You know, you can, you can look at it once and then you got to walk away from it because like, if I look at it at like eight o'clock at night and I'm going to be going to bed at like 10 30 or 11, yeah. it'll ramp me up. So you know, if I see, I'll just see one thing and I'll be like, eh, and then it'll like some, some thought will spiral and that's just like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take this time for me and just sort of sit down and uh, indulge in some more wholesome, transparent type of thought. I'm going to, I'm going to, I need to occasionally withdraw from that delusional well, and I tried to just go like first. I just tried to put limits on it. Like I left the apps on. You could, you know, you can put the reminders. And like, okay, if you spent X number of time on this app, it'll tell you it'll it'll shut it off. But you know, it always gives you the option just to, you know, ignore it so you could keep going. And then and so I started becoming conscious of like how quickly in the day I hit my limit, and then that became problematic because I realized, okay, I'm just. And you just see the screen time and, and, and I just didn't want to, and I didn't want to be that way anymore. And it was, I could feel it just sort of dragging my soul down. Um, let me actually, we got off topic. Uh, one of the, I wanted to ask you, you have a book coming out soon, right? It's not out yet. It's coming out soon. What is it? When's it? It's on pre-order. Right now. It's on pre-order. Okay. What's the name of the book? And 
give me a uh, just tell me about it. Uh, well, it was it's been picked up by the uh, the folks at Bad Dream Entertainment, okay, uh, which is an independent press, and the name of it's called the Ethereal Transit Society, okay, and it's about a, and it's about an apocalyptic cult out in California, uh, a UFO cult, and they have committed mass suicide with the exception of three members. Three members were left behind for very each for various reasons. Were not at the uh, the uh, the cult's compound at the time that the uh, the other members departed, mm -hmm. and so each of them are have been shattered in various ways by this loss. I mean, they're they're wracked by guilt and anger uh, and regret and all these things, and so they're all kind of they've all dispersed in uh, California. Of course, you become if you're a, a left behind of one of these cults, you oftentimes become very infamous. You become a target for law enforcement. So they haven't had really great lives. And then suddenly the leader of the cult, this charismatic leader named Quint, uh, who was the, uh, the, 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 the force that really drove the, their community, uh, he begins, they begin to sense his presence. Now, Quint was one of the ones who also committed mass suicide. But while the rest of the members got buried in a mass grave out in California, Quint had had made arrangements to have his body transmitted back to where he was from, which was the Ozark Mountains in Madison County, Arkansas. And so what you have in the story is he begins sending out, sending out the signal called the transit frequency. And the transit frequency is kind of like this meditation signal that they would all tune in on during their meditation sessions, their sessions. Mm -hmm. And then it turns out that they are, they begin to hear it again. And they're like, oh, my God, he's sending out that frequency again, but he's dead. Mm -hmm. And so the story begins with these three former UFO cult members um, going to Madison County, Arkansas, back in the hills to try to find the place where their former uh, charismatic leader was buried. And all the shenanigans that so, come along with that. Is it modern day? Uh, well, period? the... the uh, uh, the, the way that the, the, the editor described it on the book jacket is that sometimes apocalyptic cults get it right. <laughs> and so um, the, uh, the, the, the entire narrative takes place over less than 24 hours. So it's almost real time. So if you read it, you're almost reading it in real time. Okay. And um, uh, I think that one of the reviewers on Goodreads said something like, uh, he packs a lot into, you know, it's not a real long book. It's actually a, a, a novel. And he said he packs a lot in there. So it's a, uh, a lot of things happen in that 24 hours um, uh, uh, to, uh, to these individuals. You can, you can imagine how they would be received in a place like, like Madison County. Mm -hmm. um, they go there and they actually find that a lot of people in the community are suffering from this kind of mass psychosis. And so... Um, that's because the transit frequency is vibrating really strong in this community and it's causing all of these um, disruptions in various sorts of wildlife and people. Like they're, they're becoming increasingly anxious and paranoid mm -hmm. uh, because they don't know what it is that's agitating them. And so they're entering into this community, which at this point is, is, is really struggling, trying to figure out what's going on. And... Um, and then, yeah, from there, they, they have to, uh, to figure out a way to, to navigate this, are you uh, this terrain. Are you sure you don't know something about our modern life that you're not telling me right now? 
Well, because it feels like that that's a little that's that's hitting the nail on the head pretty solid. Yeah, it's it's well, like I said, I don't write anything that isn't true, right? Yeah. If it doesn't ring true with a certain type of experience or worldview, it's uh, it, I, I don't I don't want to write it. So, um, so I'm trying to like describe it without like uh, giving the actual plot. Right. Yeah. I don't, yeah. But it's a. Uh, um, uh, let's just say that um, that there are adult themes. There is violence. There is. Um, but the people and the, the people who are members of this cult, one of the things that uh, some of the reviewers have been kind enough to, to uh, say about it is that they find it very authentic. Mm -hmm. Because bear in mind, I've been studying cults mm -hmm. for a long time, and so I, it, I'm not. I, I really try very hard not to present some sort of cartoon version of what a cult is. Right. Um, these are actual people. Charismatic leaders don't just come in and like take over and like you know just pour information in people's brains. Right. There's a kind of energetic exchange between the members of the cult and the and the leader. Sometimes the leader has to become what the people in the cult want that leader to be. It's really strange to sometimes watch, watch these dynamics unfold. And so each of these people had a very complicated relationship with that. Um, uh, the three remaining members, their cult names. Every, you get a you get a different name when you picture this cult. Their cult names were Om, Astra, and Z. And each of them had sort of a unique relationship with Quint. Each of them are kind of like working through uh, some of those uh, uh, some of those issues, and they have like issues with each other. They they don't have a very fluid relationship with each mm -hmm. other. But like one of the things that's kind of interesting is that when they begin to readapt to and begin to readopt their cult personalities, you know, they've been kind of out of the cult for a year and away from each other. Once they sort of move back into that sphere with each other, their interactions become easier, and they begin to sort of uh, uh, they begin to. Uh, uh, function better as a as a team, so um, which isn't really happening for them, of course. So, but what it, what it's it's told from a first person narrative point of view. Mm -hmm. uh, I've tried to create you know an all, a fairly authentic voice uh, for the the person who is is actually telling the story. Uh, the uh, uh, who's uh, uh, who's one of one of the one of the the, the left behind cult members, and. Uh, he's a survivor of a self-inflicted gunshot wound, and so I, I try as, as best I can to try to um, present them. And you know, one of the things that I actually tried to do in my class when I taught apocalyptic rhetoric is that it was really easy for students to kind of step back and be like, "Well, that's just crazy. That's mm -hmm. crazy. Why would anybody think that or believe that? Why would somebody think a flying saucer is going to come and pick them up?" Right. It's like, well, have you ever thought about some of the things you believe? You know, have you ever thought about the fact that, you know, you, you know, you've got talking snakes and you've got, you know, a, you know, a, a blood drinking God who comes and drinks his, the blood of his son. And then, um, you know, and somehow that, that equates to some form of salvation. And it's it's kind of like, you know, I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying, like, it sounds kind of strange. If you right, were to, you were to like, explain that story to somebody who's never heard it before, it would sound a little bit unusual. And so. Um, it's just because you grew up with it, and all the people around you reinforce it that it seems like it's it, it's 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 normal. So what I really tried to do is try to uh, present a lot of these cults for what they were, which were oftentimes groups of people who were seekers, mm -hmm. and they uh, they would go out and they would find a set of ideas or a community uh, with which they could um, they could uh, with which in which they felt more at home, and they uh, 
Uh, and some and sometimes they have very destructive consequences. There's no doubt about that. Um, but to simply you know dismiss them as crazy or something like that is well, that was is, the, is really kind of missing the point. That was the Jim Jones thing. I mean, the whole Jonestown. I mean, he started out as this you know a progressive preacher, and he had a huge into social justice stuff and the, and the, the political parties loved him and, uh, he had a huge following. And then, and then, and and I remember watching the, it was the Jonestown documentary, but something you said reminded me of him, um, is that he would be, and he would tell people he would be whatever person, one of his followers needed him to be. Like if you need yeah. me to be, in, that's what Manson said too. Yeah, he's like, if you need me to be your daddy, I'll be your daddy. If you need me to be, basically, if you need me to be your lover, I'll be your lover. Whatever it is you need, I'll. And then that progressed. If you need me to be God, then I will be God. And yeah. and, and then yeah, I'm sure that they're, they're, I'm sure that yeah, the Jonestown was most certainly a, a kind of a, a synergy between the group and 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 their leader, uh, and Jones. Um, and he was a. Uh, um, yeah, and and he was, you know, he he obviously once he sort of went down that road of the kind of the paranoid delusions and everything, um, he just kind of pulled them down into that whirlpool. But uh, yeah, watching that particular community evolve over time is is a a really fascinating. And actually, the, the, if it's the documentary I'm thinking of that you had seen, um, that sound that you get where they commit mass suicide and they don't have a video, but they have the audio mm-hmm. of the people screaming. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it, um, you, you people talk about like drinking the Kool-Aid, like it's some kind of a joke. I don't actually make that joke anymore because after I actually listen to the audio of mothers feeding poison to their children and, and just this, the cries of mourning. I mean, it's just, it's like people mourn. They're watching their loved ones die one at a time. Yeah, and it's just this constant wail. Um, uh, if there's a hell, it, it may very well sound like that. Yeah. So, um, okay. <laughs> so it's a it's a with these, but yeah. So when you when you look at these uh the, these communities, um, actually the one that I kind of deal with in the, the ethereal transit society, they're more like some of the UFO cults out in California. Which were not, uh, they weren't based on sexual predation. You know, like Charles Manson, the first thing he would do when a new girl came to the ranch is he would kind of, you know, have sex with them, you know, and oftentimes in a very sort of uh, uh, aggressive type of way, right? It, it was all about use, he, he, or, or he would tell them to go have sex with some guy that he just met, you know, some guy that he wanted a favor from. Right. So this is some of some of these groups are not actually the one I'm writing about is not really about sexual domination and submission. Um, uh, and some of them, in fact, were uh, you know like Heaven's Gate, for example. Yeah, I was thinking so about the Heaven's Gate group. I was asked. Yeah, I mean, they were actually trying to get out of their bodies. They were trying to get away from their sexual desire, trying to get away from all of that. So uh, this group is a little bit uh, more similar to something like that, where you have a they're they're trying to sort of rise above the human condition. Um, and Clint, their former leader, was not the, he was not really the sort that was uh, uh, into um, sadism or, or trying to uh, um, victimize people. So when's the book come out? Uh, it's going to be, it's on pre-order right now on mm-hmm. Amazon. And uh, it will be coming out in early December, I think, or December 7th will be the, the publication date. 
But if you want to go look at it on Amazon, uh, it's called the Ethereal Transit Society. And it is, uh, um, I don't think it's real expensive. I think it's like five or six bucks or something like that. And um, you can either order, pre-order pre a, uh, a, uh, an ebook version or a, uh, a hard copy. So I've actually got, let me see if I can find a, I don't have the, I don't have the, the proofs yet. Mm -hmm. Let me see if I can look up the, uh, you know, actually publishing a book has, uh, I've learned a lot that my, the editor I'm working with over at Bad Dream Entertainment is really teaching me a lot about just the publication process that I've mm -hmm. learned about. So, you know, even just things like, uh, uh, just things like, you know, doing the, you know, getting the cover done and getting that sent off to the, the printers and everything. It's, it's, uh, um, it's all like, I think it's just, uh, I'm, I'm learning so much. Let's see, it's actually, that's $5. $5 for the Kindle version, uh, $12.99 for paperback. And here's kind of what the, the cover looks like. Um, that's going to be backwards, isn't it? Nope. I can, yeah, it's, it's fine. It's right. Yep, I can. It's read. got like a. It's got the transit light up there. That's those are supposed to be the Ozark Mountains there. Gotcha. Okay. So, but uh, uh, but yeah, I'm learning a lot about the the process of getting books out to reviewers, and there are some reviews of it now on Goodreads, and they're honest reviews. You can tell because they're not all fives. You know, if you see a book and they're all fives, you got to be like, okay, I'm not really sure if this is actually. Right. They're probably not real. So the, the reviews are, I think, are pretty honest, and the, the folks are, um, uh, they like some things. Some folks, you know, frankly, I think my, my theory of reviews is that um, it's sometimes good to have a couple of really bad ones, you know, where people read the book and they're like, I hated this. I can't, it, it upset me. You know, kind of like, usually that's what I look for. If I, if I see like movie reviews or book reviews and they're all really positive, I'm like, well, this is just um, I feel but if I way. see one and at least a couple of like people getting upset about it, I'm kind of like, oh, okay, this is a. I, f I feel the same they, way about student evaluations. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I found the instructor offensive, and you know, yeah, then it's a, uh, it's like then doing you're doing your job, doing 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 what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Tom. We've we've gone over an hour. I've, I I mean, I've got I've got nothing left. Oh, uh, I do have one other thing because I'm going to be doing a reading of one of your short stories um, mm -hmm. for this part. Anything you want to say about that before uh, I do it, so people tease it a little bit before I read it? Yeah, the story I sent over is called "Deleted Scenes," mm -hmm. and uh, uh, it's it's kind of it's about a washed up uh, actor from the exploitation era of cinema especially from those uh, those Italian jungle movies that came out in the 1970s. I don't know, you might have a, a younger listenership, uh, but just to give you a little background, those, those particular movies were considered like the worst of the worst in terms of exploitation cinema, uh, just because they were so... Uh, the 70s was a time when, when horror movies took a really, really, really dark turn. Mm -hmm. um, and... And uh, the Jungle Holocaust films were kind of uh, definitely uh, uh, among the worst offenders when it came to uh, just assaulting the audience with as many uh, upsetting images as they possibly could. So this story is about a uh, one of an actor from one of those movies being invited to a, um, 
a convention where they're going to be viewing one of those films and, and talking about it and interviewing them on stage. And it, it ends up taking a kind of unexpected turn for it. So it's all about the fan convention experience for a for somebody in that line of work. All right. Hey, do you have a website people can right. do your track you down? Are you, uh, I, I, I'm guessing you're not a big social media guy, but uh, you do have a website, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. I've, uh, I do do Facebook. I'm, I need, I know I probably need to ask you about this because you're like the, the guy that's really good at like reaching out to people in these, these formats. So I'm thinking about maybe starting an Instagram or something. I really don't think I've got, I don't think I'm really, I don't think I can really launch a, what are they? TikTok. I don't really think I, I, I may not have the uh, the right type of sensibility for being able to, to do that. But um, but in terms of a website, you can go to brokentransmitter.com and sure. there's a little bit there, that that shows you about what I think about my writing right there. Brokentransmitter.com. It's like I'm a broken transmitter. So, um, but here's the thing. I think sometimes broken, like you know how. Guys like William S. Burroughs. It's like like Hunter Thompson. Mm -hmm. What makes Hunter Thompson interesting? He's broken. He's kind of, <laughs> he's kind of a broken person, you know. It's it's his it's his brokenness that makes him kind of interesting. So, yeah. um, so that that's why I uh, I chose that. Uh, what, so I chose that that. I like it. Whatever they call it. I like it. Yeah, URL or whatever it is. All right, Doctor Vaughn. It's been in, it's been enjoyable. All right, really. I, I miss our conversation. Awesome, Thanks for doing this. Oh, no problem. Like I yeah. seriously miss our conversations when you just kind of wander around and just sort of pop into somebody's office and talk. And you're yeah. those guys are in your office and just say a bunch of disturbing non sequitur things. Uh, yeah, and then just walk kind of yeah, and then you just walk away, and then yeah. <laughs> I just interfered with your life a little bit there. It's okay. I don't. I don't. I didn't mind. It just. It, it added a nice little um, interesting piece of punctuation to my day. So, all right. Well, you have a wonderful day, and uh, say hi to the cat, and you know, hopefully, uh, we'll do this again soon. Awesome. Good luck in the cabin. All right, man. Thanks. So long. All right. Take care. Deleted Scenes by Thomas Vaughn When Dean turned off the ignition, the Dotson began its habitual death shutters. The car had been doing this for almost three months. Whenever he stopped the engine, it gasped like a hospice patient. He knew that if he simply pumped the gas pedal, the spasms would stop. But instead, he just sat there listening. On a positive side, with its cracked windshield sun-baked paint, his shabby ride really didn't stand out in the Van Nuys neighborhood. After about 20 seconds, the painful quivering terminated with one final death rattle. He patted the dashboard and said, You and me, dying a slow death with a million other lost souls. Dean was not a man to pass up on cheap symbolism. The air welcomed him as he stepped from his car and lit a cigarette. The traffic was unusually light and there was only a couple of pedestrians, one being an ancient Japanese woman pushing a shopping cart full of rags and with a look of grim concentration. He wished he had a five to give her, but instead all he could offer was a smile. Then in a moment of self-absorption, he comforted himself that he hadn't hit bottom yet. 
although he was getting damn close. After scanning the street, he saw the theater's marquee. It read, Cannibal Hell. It wasn't until he'd gotten the invitation that he even realized that there was a movie house in the area. It was one of those outdated double screens bracketed by dismal-looking office buildings. How the developers missed their chance to gut it and turn it into a call center was a mystery. Beneath the film's title marquee, it read, Special Guest, Dean Wood. He shook his head and he sighed. His career had not been a distinguished one. His best gig was as a sidekick role on an 80s cop show that had run four seasons. After that, it was just shorts and TV walk-ons. Over the past ten years, those bit parts gradually dried up. Whenever he was remembered, which was extremely rare, it was for Cannibal Hell. It was his first role, a mindless gore-fest shot in Brazil with a mentally ill German director named Hans Osterman. Cannibal Hell was considered Osterman's masterpiece. Interest in the film was boosted by perverse mythology that grew up around it, like rumors of snuff sequences. It was mostly just hype designed to reel in the customers, but there was no denying that the film delivered on its promise to agitate viewers. The movie's cruel lack of empathy launched it as an underground cult classic in the intervening years. Dean took a few drags and thought about getting back in his car and heading to the squalid Long Beach bungalow he rented. It only takes one mistake, he said wistfully, thinking about how things might have been different if Osterman hadn't singled him out during that casting call. Of course, his first and only lead would turn out to be something like this. Then he looked at the Dotson and he thought about the $300 appearance fee. A man's got to eat, he muttered, and he dropped the cigarette on the ground and with a wry smile forming on his face. He sauntered toward the ticket window in no particular hurry. Over the past 35 years since the movie's release, he had gained a paunch and lost some hair, but he did keep up with the tan and could still flash that smile. There didn't seem to be a lot of cars in the parking lot, and he cultivated the small hope that it would be sparsely attended, thus facilitating a quick exit. There was an attractive woman in the box office looking at her cell phone who didn't seem to notice when he leaned his shoulder against the glass. Still got room in there for me, he asked. He hated himself the moment he said it. She was 25 years younger and would have no interest in a Hollywood washout like him. Sometimes it just seemed like a switch that he couldn't turn off, the whole clown act. It was the damn movie. It seemed as if all the hate poured into it during those long days of shooting in the jungle had animated it like a celluloid tapeworm that devoured a little more of his career each time it unspooled in front of a projector beam. The woman glanced up without recognition. The show started 30 minutes ago. I know. I've seen it before. I'm Dean Wood. You're late, she said without effect. Yeah, I see all the traffic and all... He couldn't admit the truth, which was that he would rather be anywhere, anywhere other than here. And it was only because of the vodka tonics that he'd showed up at all. All that and the money. Without taking her eyes off him, she lifted the phone to one ear and spoke. After a brief conversation, she motioned him to the door. Once inside, he was met by a guy in his 30s with wire rim glasses. 
Mr. Wood, I'm Steve, he said. We spoke on the phone. Nice to meet you, Steve. Please, call me Dean. Sorry about being late and all that. Oh, no problem. The Q&A doesn't start until after the film. Can I get you something? No worries, Dean said, shaking his head. Say, Steve, I didn't see a lot of cars out there. Anyone show? Actually, we have a full house, said Steve. Steve evidently saw the surprise on Dean's face. There's been a resurgence of interest in Osterman's work since he died last month. Dean's smile vanished for a moment. Osterman died? Yes. Didn't you know? Dean felt a strange sadness. It wasn't that he had liked Osterman. The director wasn't the kind of guy you wanted to get close to. He'd been insufferably temperamental and lacked compassion for other humans. No, I didn't, actually. We didn't keep up with each other after the film, and, and I really don't like reading the obits. It was strange. While he'd never cared for Osterman, it didn't seem right that he would miss the man's death, given the fact that they'd shared this modest fame together. It struck Dean that, while they never spoke, the director had remained a looming presence in his life. In fact, there probably wasn't a single aspect of Dean's existence that had not been shaped by Osterman's brutal vision of the world. Steve gestured for Dean to follow and they entered through a side door that led to a passageway that ran alongside the theater. The building was old and very musty. As a man who'd been living on the edge of oblivion, Dean was familiar with that smell. It was the scent of a place that only received air conditioning a few times a year. You could still smell the baked vinyl and the particle board despite the cool air. The passage was lit by a few flickering ceiling lamps. On the other side of the wall, he heard one of the many torture scenes from Cannibal Hell blaring like a revenant that he couldn't escape. Dean winced at the screaming... Dean winced at the screeching sound. It was a bit where one of those weird tree rats gets its belly opened up with a knife while it's still alive. There was no special effect in the scene, just one of the characters sticking a knife in the rat and slitting it up the middle while the creature writhed and shrieked. Usually they edit that scene out, Dean said a little annoyed. Steve turned around and eyed blandly. No, this one is partially restored. Partially restored? Well, um, good. So that's how it was. He was wondering why he hadn't gotten a really warm reception. There was a good chance he would have a hostile crowd, uptight feminists and pita freaks. He almost turned to leave, but then he thought about the Datsun. He really needed that $300. Alright, if they needed someone to atone for Osterman's sins, he could take it. He had taken worse over the years. He motioned, Steve motioned him to a chair and the two of them sat in the wings waiting for Cannibal Hell to finish working its magic. The movie didn't have much of a plot. Dean played an anthropology student sent to the jungle with a film crew to prove the bloody ape hypothesis. That humans were no more than savages once you removed the trappings of civilization. Most of the cast were Yanamano tribesmen who spent the majority of the film torturing people or fleeing the predations of the film crew who in true heart of darkness fashion were caught up by the momentum of their own latent sadism. Dean frowned as he remembered the way Osterman had chastised him after refusing to cut the tree rat. That was not Dean's thing. He might have been naive, but he was not going to cut up a living animal. But Osterman had cast this Spanish psychopath named Elias, who was all too happy to get some screen time. 
It seemed like all that guy did was butcher animals, even when the camera wasn't rolling. While the two men waited for the movie to end, Dean observed his surroundings. There was the familiar red glow of an exit light and dirty curtains. The ceiling tiles exhibited brown water stains. It looked as if no one had swept the floor in years. Say, Steve, I think someone left some roach bait over in that corner that's older than you are. The young man glanced in the direction it indicated. Boric acid, yeah, yeah, that's been here for a while. You know, this place was actually built back in the 30s by a Baptist minister who wanted to show Christian educational films. Is that so? You know, that's real interesting. By the way, about my fee. Steve looked at him quizzically. My money, Steve. The 300? Wordlessly, the host pulled out his wallet and extracted three $100 bills and handed them to Dean. I hope you don't mind cash. Cash works just fine. Thanks. If the guy felt any discomfort at Dean asking to be paid up front, he didn't show it. By the time the money was in his wallet, Cannibal Hell was wrapping up. The plot predictably resolved itself with the entire film crew being killed by vengeful, bloodthirsty indigenous tribespeople. Dean's character had been the last to go in a prolonged torture sequence that involved dismemberment and impalement on a large spit. He remained in the wings while the house lights came up. Steve walked out onto the small stage and began his introduction. Dean had been through this rodeo enough times not to be nervous. Charmed to disarm was his motto. You need to tap dance around the tough questions and maybe show a bit of regret. Actually, he didn't need to fake that. The damn movie was the worst mistake he'd ever made. Most of all, he would distance himself from Osterman. Dean was only an actor, not the architect. When he was cued, he walked out on stage and was surprised by the applause that, while not uproarious, was at least a notch above polite. Perhaps it would not be such a bad night after all. There were chairs positioned facing the spectators, and the two men sat after shaking hands. The crowd was what you would expect. Film geeks and pseudo-academics, along with a few Silicon Valley hipsters, slumming it up on a Friday night. The first question came from a woman in her 40s who had asked why he'd signed on to the project. Dean feigned embarrassment as the audience laughed nervously. Oh hell, I was just an 18 year old kid from a small town in Washington. I'd been in the big city for roughly six months and was still sleeping on the floor of this girl I knew. Then along comes this big time director, or at least what appeared to be a big time director and he wants to cast me as lead in this movie. He tells me they're going to shoot on location in South America, and I thought I'd hit it big. But I was just a dumb kid. He was glad to have that one in the bag because it showed he was human, not the monster on the screen. The next question came from a college kid, probably UCLA from the look of him. What was it like to work with Hans Osterman? Dean adopted a thoughtful pose. It was difficult. I honestly can't tell you why he cast me. I just read a couple of lines and he said you have the job. It was the shortest audition I'd ever had. We fought a good bit on the set though. He had this way of peering down at you with, with the, through his thick spectacles when you did something wrong. A lot of the scenes had to be done in one take, like the part where Elias shoots the goat. I actually flubbed up my lines there. I had never seen an animal shot before. Osterman was livid, but by the next day he decided that it actually gave it the scene more authenticity. We're always up and down like that. 
Then an older woman, an academic type, asked him what he thought about the film's depiction of torture and sexual assault against women. It was tap dance time. Well, you know they're not very good. But the film was a product of its times. A lot of the horror films back in the 60s and 70s expressed a kind of panic about sexuality. When we got to the late 70s and early 80s, something else had taken over. There was this unsettling nihilistic mean streak in them. They really seemed to revel in sexual abuse. I don't know what it means about our country that people want to watch that sort of thing. Maybe after decades of repression, we didn't really know what healthy sexuality looked like. But Cannibal Hell certainly was among the worst of the worst. I, for one, am glad you don't see films like that anymore. It was always good to throw in a little cultural psychobabble to cloud the water. Dean realized he was enjoying himself the way he always did when he was performing. Then a fat kid with shoulder-length kinky hair stood up. Before he could ask his question, Dean interrupted him by saying, Hey man, Guns N' Roses called and they want their hair back. There were a few giggles from the back of the crowd before Dean added, I'm just kidding you, man. That's before your time. Go ahead and ask your question. The kid smiled good-naturedly and said, My cousin said you actually shot at some guy when you were making the film, but they left it out so you wouldn't go to jail. Dean had been waiting for this one and smiled patiently. It was the era of exploitation films. Anything a company could say to get people talking about a movie was important. When you're appealing to the lowest common denominator, there was no such thing as bad press. I can tell you that without a doubt, no one was actually killed during the making of this film. Sorry if that's a disappointment. Perhaps it's time for one of our deleted scenes. Things have been going so well that Dean had forgotten that Steve was still sitting on the stage with him until he started speaking. Deleted scenes? I thought you just showed the restored version. I said partially restored. Upon his death, Mr. Osterman's estate was kind enough to donate the edited scenes to our organization. Before Dean had a chance to argue, Steve nodded and the projection booth whirred into life and the lights partially dimmed. Dean shrugged to the crowd and then turned to the screen with an indulgent smile. It was one of those cinema verite segments with the unsteady camera. The scene opens with Elias on top of a bloodied Indian pressing his face to the ground. Then Dean appeared in the scene. He could not remember the take, but it was him alright. It was sad to see his younger self on the screen. He'd been a handsome kid with shoulder-length brown hair and an innocent smile. Maybe that's why Osterman had cast him. Something in that guy really reveled in defiling anything that didn't conform to his dirty vision of the world. He watched his younger self put a gun to the back of the Indian's head and pull the trigger. Bits of scalp and skull plastered the leaves as the man's cranium jumped like it had been kicked. Elias then turned the dead man's face toward the camera so that the viewer got a good look at the exit hole in the forehead. Then the camera panned back to Dean, who was ranting in static excitement. The human rights revolution is a delusion. This is real. Here in this place, humans battle for resources and our true nature comes out. We are savages. No more lies. Murder. Rape. We are the masters of hell. The scene ended and the projector went silent. Dean didn't know what to say. It had clearly been him on the screen, but he had no memory of it. That take seems very authentic, 
said Steve, after a pause. No one in the theater said a word. All the positive vibes had been sucked right out of the room. Would you mind telling us how it was staged? Yeah, said Dean. I mean, I would like to. But I can't remember it. Steve stared at him strangely, impassive. Dean wondered if this was some type of setup. I mean, it was a long time ago, and I may not remember every scene, but I'm pretty sure we didn't hurt anything but our careers and a few animals. He turned to the audience and tried to smile, but he found that he couldn't look at them. He rubbed his jaw uncomfortably. Mr. Wood, are you alright? Yeah, sure, just didn't expect that. Well, 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 then perhaps you could talk us through this one. Before Dean had recovered, the projector came to life and he was confronted by that phantom self that he thought long dead. This time there was no sound. He was copulating with a tribeswoman. Her face was streaked with tears. The Yanomano were not actors and received their instructions through an interpreter and hand gestures. But it was striking that the distress on her face looked real. She stared at the camera as if imploring whoever was running it to intervene. The shot panned down, revealing that the sex was not simulated. Dean felt himself growing ill. His head started to swim a little. The scene ended with him standing up and buttoning his jeans while Elias appeared with his machete and decapitated the woman. Again, the projector went silent. The moderator placed his hands in his lap and said, So you don't remember that either? Dean stared at the blank screen. I don't. I honestly don't remember that. That's not who I am. I may not be much, but I'm not like that. Even as the words were coming out of his mouth, he knew that it was him on the screen. Why couldn't he remember? Drugs? They had smoked a little pot, but that couldn't be it. Maybe some type of split self after a traumatic event but wouldn't he have ptsd symptoms he looked to the crowd as if they might have the answer but all he saw was a dilapidated movie theater filled with empty seats you're losing it he thought this time the moderator simply nodded and the projector pierced the darkness one last time dean's head jerked back to the screen his younger self was naked and smeared in blood. This time he spoke directly to the camera, his voice occupying that liminal zone between tears and laughter. What's wrong, Osterman? Am I violating the fourth wall? We have violated bigger boundaries than that. We murdered our own shame, you and I. Buried it in the jungle, didn't we? And we mustn't let our scarce resources go to waste. Then he leered into the camera and began chewing a piece of raw, bloody flesh. While the identity of the meat was not specified, he somehow knew that it was human. It had been so many years. That kid was dead, murdered by the industry that had sucked the life out of him. Why was he coming back now? As shock set in, Dean began to tremble as the movie image dissolved into a shot of Indians gathered around in a semicircle, staring in dull insolence. He searched their faces for some type of accusation, but all he, saw, all he saw was a desire to inflict pain. 
For a long time, he couldn't tear his eyes away from this congregation. He had the feeling they were looking right back at him through the barriers of time and brittle celluloid. Finally, he turned to the moderator. But instead, the man he had come to know as Steve, he saw Hans Osterman. He was older, and there were purple blotches around his roomy eyes. Hans? Mr. Osterman? What? Dean's eyes clouded with tears. His body trembled violently as he had no awareness of anything outside of the apparition before him. Crossing the space between them, Ostergerman helped Dean to his feet, his body stinking of rotten jungle death. Placing one hand around Dean's shoulder, they turned and walked toward the tribesmen gathered on the screen. Why me? gasped Dean. Why me? Because I knew you would give me everything you had, said the director. And then they crossed the threshold to the waiting carnivorous ants and the impalement spike prominently displayed in the background. Greedy hands reached through the screen to welcome Dean home. Only then was it clear that Osterman's masterpiece had been fully restored. <laughs>